I want to welcome you all, all of you here this morning to Redeemer. Um, our senior pastor, Hal, as has already been mentioned, is out of town speaking at a conference. My name is Justin Clement, and um, I serve with a ministry called Reform University Fellowship. It is our denominational campus ministry, so I work full-time with Georgia students. And if this is your first time at Redeemer, thank you so much for coming. Particularly those of you that um, don't quite know what you think about Christianity. We're honored that you're here. Uh, we hope that you are encouraged and that you will think more and consider what it might look like to actually follow Jesus. So thank you for coming. If you have your Bibles with you, feel free to open them um, or you can follow along. It might even be more helpful to follow along in the bulletin because we're going to look at some selected passages. Um, I had a, the privilege a couple of nights ago to hang out with some of you in this room and we watched a movie. Uh, and... This is a movie that if you're looking for the feel-good comedy of the year, this would not be that movie. Um, if you're looking for a, 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 a family-friendly children's movie, this would also not be that movie. But if you are looking for a gritty, raw sort of um, picture of life in the wilderness and even the darkness of the human soul, then this is the right movie right movie for you. Um, many of you have already seen uh, Leonardo DiCaprio in the movie The Revenant, and um, it's a very raw movie. I'm certainly not endorsing it. It's not for everyone. I told Elizabeth, you probably don't want to see this movie. But it is fantastic. Um, it's a fantastic portrayal of a true story of a guy named Hugh Glass. Now, they took a lot of poetic liberties with some of the details in the story. But Hugh Glass was a real person. Um, he did live in the wilderness. He was a, um, a, a, a trader of pelts and furs. He really did get mauled by a bear and lived to tell about it. But what I really want, what, what really stood out to me in this story was how um, Hugh Glass was trying to get better from surviving this bear attack while living in, you know, negative temperatures, and how the people around him honestly just left him for dead. Just basically said, you know what? I'm like, you're going to die, and if I stay here with you, I'm going to die with you. And so they left him for dead. Moment of confession. When I watched that movie, I didn't tell some of the guys I was sitting with, I was thinking, I was like, now, how could they do that to him? I would never do that. I would never leave someone for dead. But then I was honestly thinking to myself, what if I was starving to death? Ten out of ten times, I'm going to save my own skin. If I'm really scared enough, I'm going to save my own skin. If I'm exhausted enough, like the men in this movie, I'm going to save my skin 10 out of 10 times. You see, could it be that we, we look at a movie like, like um, The Revenant and, and, and we, we say, oh man, I would never do that. But could it be, can we be honest enough to say that all of us are two or three mistakes away from showing our true colors? Could it be that we're so padded by our comforts and the world that we're living in that we don't realize that at the core, we are just like John Fitzgerald in the movie. There's a darkness 
that plagues our hearts. That we're going to save our own skin. We're going we're to take care of ourselves. We're going to take care of our own families. We're going we're to make sure that we got, have our ducks in a row. The Bible would call that sin and darkness. How does Jesus enter into this? What is Jesus' take on something so heavy and so serious? Well, we're going to look at that in John chapter 1. So I'm going to read these selected verses before you, and then I'm going to pray for us and ask the Lord to help us. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Again, this is our theme verse right here. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you would be our light this morning, that you would illumine the darkness that is in all of our hearts. I pray that we might see you as more wonderful, more radiant, more majestic than all of the darkness that we so often run to. Light this place up that we might see you, that we might know you, that we might have joy and satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus says something in verse 12 very clearly, I am the light of the world. This is one of Jesus' many I am statements. He says, I am this, I am that. He says in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Chapter 10, I am the door and the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. And here in John 8. He says, I am the light of the world. I'd like us to consider three aspects to Jesus being the light of the world. I want you to first consider the celebration, and then I want you to consider the claim, and then thirdly, I would like us to consider the command. The celebration, the claim, and the command. First, let's look at the celebration. What are they celebrating? Now, if you have your Bibles or you have a device... Uh, flip over to chapter 7, verse 1, and you will see where Jesus is. Jesus is at a celebration, a high feast day called the Feast of Booths 
or otherwise known as the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a joyful seven-day party. I did a little bit of research on this. I'm not going to geek out on you too much. But suffice it to say, this was known, the reputation was this was the most joyful feast that the Jewish people celebrated in. It was an annual seven-day party where people would go to Jerusalem. What is the Feast of Booze? God commanded them to have a good time. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning, let that hit you. God is not a killjoy. It's just we find our satisfaction in so many other places besides Him. He's like, I'm commanding you. I want you to have joy. I want you to have a great time for seven days. It was a celebration to commemorate God preserving His people while they were wandering around living in a desert. We, the word it's translated as wilderness really means desert. Nothing really lives in a desert. Let us never forget when we had no crops, no homes, no water, and no bread. That's what this celebration was all about. They lived, actually, like the people would stream to Jerusalem. And I want you to imagine this scene. You're standing on top of uh, the Temple Mount, which is the highest place in the city. And what you would see are a whole bunch of huts every year. It was like, it was like the Jewish Woodstock. There's all these thatch huts, and in, in each hut was a family. And they would live there. To remember when they did not have a home, God provided. They poured out water during a ceremony. Why? To remember when they were dying of thirst in the desert, God provided water from a rock. Every night they would light four 75-foot-tall candles. And why would they do that? To remember that God was their light in the desert when they were shrouded in darkness. Four 75-foot-tall candles. Ancient sources say that the candles were so huge, every courtyard in Jerusalem was flooded with light for only one week. And it was at this feast. There was joy, there was dancing into the wee hours of the morning, Seven days a week. Because God did the unthinkable. He provided light and food and water when there's no way that we could provide it for ourselves. How was God the light for his people in the desert? Well, many of you are familiar with the story. I'm going to kind of go over it. As the people of God were leaving Egypt, kind of in a miraculous way, God provided a Passover lamb that spared God's people. And as they're leaving a pillar-shaped cloud appeared and provided direction and guidance for God's people. It was like the, like the, the epitome of God's GPS. Follow the pillar of cloud in front of you. I will be with my people. And it gets even better than that. Deserts are horribly hot in the daytime, obviously. Well, guess what? At night, it's crazy, crazy freezing cold. What does God do? He provides a pillar of fire to say, even in the darkness, I am here. I've gone nowhere. In Exodus 14, we even find out that the cloud protected God's people as, they, as their enemies were in hot pursuit. The picture is that they, that they 
they arrive at an obstacle at the river, and then they, they can hear the chariots and, and the people that want to kill them hot on their trail, and the cloud goes from the front to the back and protects them. In Exodus 19, God descends upon Mount Sinai in thunder and what? Flames and smoke. In Exodus 40, the cloud comes down on the tabernacle in the desert. Remember, a tabernacle is basically a mobile temple. The temple that you could pick up, pack up, and move to another place. Later on, the temple is localized in Jerusalem. But for now, while they're wandering in the wilderness, God's presence is with them. The cloud descends upon the tabernacle. What is the cloud? What is the fire? Exodus 13, 21 helps us see that the Lord went before them as cloud and fire. It's the glory of God's presence. God was physically present with his people every day, every night, every step of the way. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I will protect you. I will care for, I will care for you. I will feed you. I will, pro- I will provide water for you. He came down to lead them. He came down to give them warmth at night. He came down to give them protection. Do you see the source of their joy? Do you see every year the grandmas and the grandpas and the little kids and the big kids are dancing and celebrating and drinking and eating and feasting and enjoying the massive candles? All of the reminders that when we had nothing, God had everything. And he spared no expense for us. Now, why does that matter? It's leading into number two. That's the celebration. What's the claim? Every year they would celebrate and remember, but eventually the seven days would end. Well, I guess it's back to life as usual. You know, we're, we're, we, I'm thankful that we were freed from the Egyptians. I'm thankful for the Passover. I'm thankful for God's care for us in the wilderness. But I'm, I'm a Jew living in Jerusalem and I'm still a slave. Because now the Romans have occupied me. And we're not free. When is God going to really set us free and rescue us? At this very moment, during this feast, On the last night in that city, right in front of the 75-foot candles in the temple court, according to chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus just happens to say the unthinkable. I am, which was the Old Testament covenant name of God, Yahweh, I am the light of the world. That kind of provides a little more... A little, little more of that saying to know about the celebration, doesn't it? It's kind of a big deal. Jesus is standing up in front of the 75-foot candle saying, all of this stuff, it's about me. I am the light of the world. The one you are celebrating is in your midst. The one your grandparents long for is standing before you. True light. I am the glory of God here, wearing sandals right in front of you. I'm not a signpost pointing to the I am. I am not a rabbi telling people about the I am. I am not a prophet like Muhammad paving the way for God. I am the light of the whole world. 
That's an exclusive claim. That doesn't really jive in our culture right now. Jesus stands up and says, I am the source of true life, truth, and joy. God came near to his people as a cloud. God came near to his people as a pillar of fire. But you could only come so close, right? In Exodus 19, God says, don't touch the mountain. You know where the fire and the thunder and God is descending? Don't touch this mountain or you're going to die. Don't enter into this holy of holies part of the tabernacle or you are going to die. Come near, come near. If you come too close, you will be struck dead. Come near, but not that close. I'm a consuming fire. I am holy. I am righteous. And none of us are. But Moses wants to be close. He wants more. In Exodus 33, there's such a beautiful picture. Verse 18, Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, which is I am, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face. You cannot. For man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Verse 23. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. Do you understand what Jesus is really saying in John? Have you let that hit you? It is the thing that Moses was dreaming of in Exodus 33. Show me your glory. I want to see you face to face. I want to know you. I want to be with you. I want to experience your presence. I long for you. Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm here. I want to see you face to face. I'm here. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus took his, two, his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the top of a mountain for prayer. Jesus began to radiate and glow when he was on top of the mountain with his three friends. And then suddenly, Elijah and Moses appear on top of the mountain while Jesus is being glorified. And it says that suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared and were talking with Jesus, and they spoke about Jesus' departure which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. That's in Luke 9. And then suddenly a cloud came down around Jesus and they were all scared for their life. Do you understand why they were scared for their life? They thought they were going to be consumed. They thought they were going to be destroyed by the glory of God. No one can stand before God. This is incredible. It says that Moses and Elijah, symbolizing the law and the prophets, 
were talking to Jesus about his departure. The Greek word there that we translate departure is the word exodus. Are you starting to see the connections? The glory cloud coming down on the mountain. Jesus being transformed. His glory shining. Jesus would go and lead a greater exodus than either than even Moses. The exodus that takes place in Jerusalem, Luke says. Why in the world were Peter, James, and John not destroyed? Why, why were they not consumed by the holiness of God's glory? It's because Jesus is the true exodus. Jesus is the light in the desert. That's the claim, isn't it? Jesus is the glory of the Lord. Jesus is the consuming fire. Jesus is leading the true exodus as the lamb that was slain. How? His exodus was on a Roman cross in Jerusalem. He got the darkness and we got the light. He got our sin, we got his life. You remember that when Jesus was on the cross of Calvary during the middle of daytime, There was darkness across the entire land. Do you see why? Jesus received the darkness that we deserved. The judgment of God that we might receive life and light for eternity in his presence. He's the Passover lamb who died to set his people free. That's how Peter, James, and John, that's how we can stand before his glory today and not be consumed. I will be your light when all the other lights go out. I will be your drink when all your wells run dry. I will be your food when all of your bread runs out. I will be your Passover lamb that leads you out of slavery and into freedom because I am the light of the world. What is our only response? We've learned about the celebration, the Feast of Booths. We've learned about the claim, which is he's saying, I am the Old Testament Yahweh covenantal God who has fulfilled all of the promises and prophecies of God's glory and presence and have come as a human being. I am the true fire. I am the true pillar of a cloud. Because I am now walking and tabernacling with my people. I'm leading a better exodus. Not just taking my people out away from human enemies, but breaking the backs of sin and death and shame and giving them life and hope. So what's our response? Well, we have a command. Go to the light. After hearing this, I hope your only response, whether you're not sure if you think of what you think about Christianity or you are, you are a committed Christian. I hope that all of us this morning, our application is run to the light. Go to the light. Follow Jesus is what he says. Center your identity. Fix your sense of self-worth. Not in what you're doing and your contributions and your kingdom and your little family and, and your comfort and, and, and your control. But run to the light. Run to the one that is God in the flesh. 
When he has become our glory, our reason for work, our reason for play, our reason for marriage, we are changed. Jesus says in Matthew 5, a familiar passage from the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a city on a hill. What does that mean if you are a Christian? What does it mean to be the light of the world? What does it mean to follow the one that is the light of the world? It means a number of things. But first, I'd like us to see that it, it at least means that there's a life of character. Running to the light means that there's a life of character. Being the light of the world means living a life of character whether or not anyone notices. Friends, what are you doing in the darkness? What are your thoughts in the darkness? Where does your mind go to when no one is around? What does your work look like when no one's watching? What are the things that motivate you when people don't have an eye on you? Where are you hiding in the darkness from your spouse? This morning, where are you hiding in the darkness from your roommates, from your children, from your friends? Where are you hiding in the darkness from your pastors, from your community group leaders? What are those things that are so hard, that are so difficult for you to look at, that you would just prefer to keep it in a little closet somewhere that no one could see. Friends, do you see that Jesus is the light and He sees everything? If He is the light, then we will strive to be the same person in public as we are in private because we are always in the light. No matter if God alone sees us or everyone in this city sees us. At the very least, a life of following Jesus is a life of character. Secondly, it also is a life of beauty. A life of beauty. Being the light of the world means living a beautiful life. That's right. What if our reputation as Christians in this room, within, in Athens, Georgia, is that we live lives that are so provocative, so intriguing, so beautiful, so creative that no one has a category for us and they want to know, what have you gotten a hold of? Because i got to have it. Don't you see that light, of course it exposes. That was the whole character thing, right? But don't you see that also light is attractive? It draws you in. It's warm. A life of beauty. Are your non-Christian friends looking at you at work and saying, where is your hope? Are your friends looking at how you play and how you study and how you date and ask themselves, what's happened to you? Where is this beauty and this life and this joy that you have found? Because i got to have it. Where are they drawn to emulate you? Where are they drawn to know you more? When people see how you treat the least of these, are they drawn to the light? 
When people see how you treat people who work for you, are they drawn to the light? When people see your creativity and your skills and your craftsmanship, is it so amazing and so original and so incredible that people want to know what's inspired you to make such beautiful art? Do you amaze people? Do I amaze people? Friends, as those that have been rescued by Jesus, living as lights in this world, Jesus creates a life of beauty by His Spirit in us. So a life of character, a life of beauty, but thirdly, a life of bravery. A life of character, beauty, and bravery. See, if you're the light you will expose darkness in other people. Now, caveat. Historically, the church has done a really, really bad job. Um, I think there's been a confusion. The gospel, Jesus, is very offensive. I mean, Jesus is claiming, if, the, you know, if, if you've wrestled with what Jesus is saying in John 8, he is saying, I'm God, I'm the light of the world. Everything is about me. And that is the exclusive claims of Jesus. That is very offensive. So that what, what, what Jesus is saying is everyone else is wrong and I'm right. Like, let that hit you. He's not just saying I'm a rabbi. He's not just saying I'm a prophet pointing toward God. He's saying I am the light of the entire world. Can we all agree that that's very offensive in our culture? And it was also offensive in Jesus' time. That's why they crucified him. Um, at the same time, I think as Christians, historically, we'll use those words, but we're not self-aware and we're not humble as Christians. And we do a terrible job of being offensive as followers of Jesus. Do you see the distinction? The message of Jesus is offensive, but the messengers of Jesus must never be offensive. I think that's our problem. So, Please don't hear, don't hear what I'm saying and saying, that's right, Justin's getting after it. We need to stand up. We need to, we need to take back America. We, we need to line everybody up and get them straight. Yeah, absolutely. Amen, Justin. I think you might be doing it. Jesus and the gospel is a... And I think when we are faithfully pointing people toward Jesus, we will suffer. We will be gracious and humble and, and, and like radically sacrificial for people and it will expose things in them and they, will, and they will say things like, man, you're making us look bad with how hard you're working. Man, like, why, do you think you're better than us? Why don't you join in when we're cutting each other down? When you are the light of the world, it will start exposing people around you unintentionally because you have been changed. And I'll be honest with you, we've been here six years. I think this is one of the most, I think this is the strongest thing about Redeemer, is y'all. The people in Redeemer are incredible. And you do, for the most part, the times that I've been around you, an incredible job of caring for people and moving toward people and long to see Jesus lived out in every sphere of influence in this city. And I kind of want to like encourage you, like, keep up the good work, guys. 
Like my calling as a pastor is to equip you to do, this, to do the work of ministry. And you're doing a great job. Keep at it. There's going to be pushback. You're going to get passed over on promotions. People are going to think you're a loon. They thought Jesus was crazy too. So again, a little bit of a departure, but I want us to consider that following Jesus will mean a life of bravery. And saying, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to be radically humble and radically sacrificial for the least of these. And people will not like that. And that's, we should come to expect that. For my friends this morning who are not yet convinced of the gospel, man, I hope that you're one step closer to being convinced. I hope at the very least you're going to wrestle with, is is Jesus really saying this? Is he really saying that he's the light of the entire world? Like, if that's the case, then Jesus can't be one of many gods or sort of like one of many paths on the way to the top of the mountain. I mean, if that's true, if what he's saying in John 8 is really true, then then C.S. Lewis is right. He is either a liar... He is either a lunatic and delusional, or he really is the Lord. And the message and, and his claims are just crazy enough that it might have happened. If you're, not, if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with the gospel, what are you going to do with that claim? See, his claim only elicits two responses, to run away from the light or to run toward the light. I hope that you'll run toward the light this morning. I want to close by telling you a story. Um, my eye doctor is in the congregation this morning. And I went in to see my, my good friend Emery. And, um, and we, we did our, you know, ordinary exams. And at the very end, Emery comes in with this little apparatus. And uh, my, my chin is set and I can't move my head around. And he shines this light. I, I, I couldn't think of an adjective to describe to describe, just a crazy bright light into the middle of my eye. And what is my response? Like, I start closing my eyes, I start sort of like pull my shoulders back, and you know, I'm a little bit dramatic, so it was really dramatic. <laughs> and, and Emery's like, Justin, uh, you got to look at the light. You got to look at the light. And, and again, I'm like closing my eyes, trying to say, hey, Justin, you're squinting, you got to look at the light. And I think if we could encapsulate what Jesus is saying in this entire message, it's that very idea. Redeemer, you've got to look at the light. You've got to look at the light. Is it uncomfortable? Yes. Yes, it was very uncomfortable. I did not enjoy when Emory was doing that. Does it expose? Yes. But will it allow us to see clearly? Yes. Redeemer, look at the light. Run to the light. Do you see Jesus being your light in the darkness when all the other lights fade? I hope you will. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus as the light of the world into this place of darkness. Our darkness is characterized by self-righteousness and focus on our own needs and building our own name like the Tower of Babel with our reputations and church going and everything. And Lord, it's all, our darkness is also characterized by running away from you. 
and seeking life by our own personal freedom and expression and thinking that there, like the prodigal son, we will find life and we find nothing but slavery and heartache. Thank you, Jesus, as we're reminded from the Old Testament in Nehemiah that even when the people of God were presumptuous and stiff-necked, you still continue to provide manna and water and direction. I pray that this morning that you might humble us, that we might be honest, that your grace and your truth, that the kindness of God might lead us to repentance, that we may not be fearful of you in a way that's slavish, but we might delight in you and see you and long for you like Moses to see you face to face and to know that we have beheld you face to face in Jesus. And that we long for that day, Revelation 21, when Jesus will return in glory, we will have the new heavens and the new earth, and we will behold Jesus face to face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.